0: This is Philip Mora, a pastor here at Mamlaka Chapel Chapwaka. Thanks for tuning in to our Sermons podcast. We are currently doing a series on the attributes of God. We pray that this sermon series will grow your love for God, nourish your soul, and increase your faith in God. And here is today's message. Good afternoon, Mamlaka. Good afternoon, Good afternoon once again. Afternoon. Uh, would you just turn to the person seated next to you, either on your right or on your left, give them a high five and tell them David says hi. Amazing. We continue with our series, This Is Our God, and my hope is that as we continue to learn about these attributes, that our hearts would be drawn to him, um, and that we will magnify the Lord, right? Um, there's something, there are two things that a magnifying glass can do. Uh, it can either make something small look big, or it can make something actually that is big to cause us to see for what it really is. My hope is that as we do this series, that our eyes would... Um, behold this god and look at him and celebrate what he has done and who he is to us at uh, the past times as rev has shared is that we've done incommunicable attributes and these are attributes that we said that these are only true of god and god alone These attributes set god to be god and these attributes are only true of him and not of any creation order but again today we dive into the communicable attributes and reverend Law reminded us that the best way to remember this communicable things also to think about communicable diseases, those that have actually can be passed from one person to another, and therefore these attributes God has passed them to us in some finite measure with the creation order that we're able to display these things. As I was thinking about uh, our time t- together today, um, there is a podcast that I listen uh, to by Baron Cooper, a guy who, Reverend, uh, not Reverend, Pastor, Pastor Madenge loves to listen, um, and there's something interesting that he managed to pick out, which I hope that you'll also reflect on it. He made this correct observation that there's a wrong way to try to become like God. And there's also a right way to want to imitate God. In Genesis 3, we see man trying to become like God. And again, we see a text like Ephesians 5.1, which tells us, be imitators of God. And it might feel like these two texts are actually having attention. One is telling us, don't be like God in this particular way. Another one is telling us to imitate God. And therefore, there is a good way or a right way to become like God, which is us growing in the communicable attributes that God has allowed us to share. But also there's a wrong way for us to become like God by desiring to be like him in his power, in his omniscience, in his uh, his unchanging nature or immutability, and also in his independence. And my hope is that we will look at the communicable attributes today in that light and hopefully by the end of it be provoked to want to be like God in the right way. Amen? Amen. So today we're going to cover two attributes. That is one, the goodness of God, and secondly, the love of God. And it's been said that the goodness and love of God are the most important attributes to some extent in a hurting world. And therefore, I just want us to go ahead and start with the goodness of God. And this is something that we say all the time. God is good. And all the time... Yeah, you guys, uh, your energy is actually starting up here then diminishing. The wow is also also good. So take pride in it. Uh, Yeah, so we say that God is good all the time and all the time. God is good and that is his nature. Wow. It's likely that you have used this statement a lot of times. And this statement can be a cliche. For some of you guys who find yourselves in moments where you want to do public speaking, it has been said that a good way to try and start a conversation or to speak in public uh, is to say God is good. All the time. And it's likely that we might end up using that statement as a cliche kind of statement without really, really thinking through what we really mean. And therefore, today I want us just to fix our eyes on the goodness of God. And the, by definition, this is how we define it that the goodness of God is God's nature by which he displays his kindness, his benevolence towards his creation. We say that by nature, this is God's nature by which he displays his kindness and benevolence towards his creation. And here we say that God is by nature good. He is good in all his acts. He is the standard of good. And that all that he does is worthy of his approval. I've just loved the song that we've managed to sing today, um, the song that we sang, Good, Good Father. It says you're a good, good father, and that's who you are. And then it says you are perfect in all of your ways. Out of the goodness of God, God does good to us. There is nothing that flows out of him. That is not good. God, God, in his very nature, he is kind-hearted. He is good-natured in his intention. God is the highest good because from God, creation enjoys his endless and limitless goodness. And then I would want us just to look at this uh, specific attribute in two ways. And the first uh, part is, I want us to look at it from the place of that the goodness of God is also displayed in his creatures. He displays his goodness towards his creation. God's goodness is revealed in his sincere and well-planned care for his creation. Psalms 145, verses 9, and again we go back to the scriptures to understand who God is. This is what the psalmist says. He says that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. How we see God displaying his compassion to all that he has made, it is in his meticulous care that he gives his creation. And we see a snippet of that in Psalms 104. I would ask you just to turn there so that we can read together. In Psalms 104, we would read from verses 14 to 17 and then jump to verses 24. This is what the psalmist says. In view of God's goodness to his creatures, he says, "...he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine." And bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stroke has its home in the pine trees. Again, from verses 24 says, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. Verses 27. These all look good to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. We see God's goodness in his care for his creation. And just think with me here, if God were just to allow us to survive or rather eat without having our taste buds. Um, Think with me here, if God just created us, because we need food to survive, right? We need to have food. But imagine with me here, if God removed our taste buds, we would still eat and we would still live. But God has gone ahead to give us taste buds that when you take that mayembe and you eat it, yeah? When you eat that kamande and that rice and you have that pizza, God allows you to relish that. It is part of his goodness that you would actually stand there and enjoy the ice cream and have your taste buds, like, Feeling that cuttingly touching feel of the goodness of that food. And once you, you conclude and you conclude eating that meal, you'd actually feel that warmth embrace. And imagine that food it, it hasn't gotten to its perfection. Because again, we know that sin corrupted everything. Imagine if that mayembe was not affected by sin. That feeling would be godly. It would be a heavenly kind of kind of fruit. God displays his goodness by providing shelter, clothing, food for all creation. But also on top of that, Jesus makes, um, the, the, the book of Matthew makes a very interesting um, statement here in Matthew chapter 5, from verses 45. We see God's goodness not only just to his creation, but we see it to all men. He says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. God displays his goodness to all, believers and non-believers alike. Atheists experience God's goodness whether they choose to accept it or not. Again, we see God's goodness not necessarily being limited to believers, but sometimes it's likely that we might look at his goodness and get puzzled. And we see the Asaph writing something interesting in Psalm 73, from verses 2 to 5. In that particular Psalm, the Asaph is concerned. He's concerned that the wicked seem like they are prospering. They're actually doing better than the righteous. This is what he says. But as for me, my feet has almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens, and they are not plagued by human ills. This particular psalm, as the psalmist is trying to lament at the state of his own prosperity compared to that of the, of the wicked people, there is this reality that God displays his goodness both to the believers. And the unbelievers. But again, the other statement that we want us also to look at it from the second thing is that God is the source of all good and the standard of good. Think with me here, there are comments we make often. We eat some food and we say that was a good, that was a good meal. You eat a meal and probably someone has invited it to your home and they've they've made them use the same same example. ...muchele, kamande and chapati... ...and they've made it and with some, some, some garnished um, what chicken, for example... ...and you're eating all that and you feel that's such a good good meal... ...and you, you enjoy the meal and you give very, very good feedback. Five-star rating about that meal. But in that particular statement, you are acknowledging... ...that's the extent of your, of your standard. You have said it's good as per your, your, your liking, right? But if you were to bring a chef de cuisine someone who is the best chef in town, to sample that mchele, kamande, and, 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 and uh, what else? And chapo, And they would wonder what manner of use of coriander was that? Yeah. This, this, this is not a flavorful kind of meal, right? And, and the standard has changed. The only difference there is that you are not as good as the chef de cuisine. You are just a normal person trying to bring all manner of ingredients together to make a meal, but we see that God is actually the source of all good. In Psalms 84, 11, this is what the psalmist says, he says, no good thing does the Lord withhold. Last week we looked at a text in James 1:17. 17, which says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Every good and every gift that you might think is good, the source of it is God. Everything flows from him. Again, in comparison to us, what we usually do as human beings in Matthew 7, 11, this is what um, the writer says. He says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Uh, and just let's just pause there. Uh, to the fathers in the house, um, when, you're, when, you're, when your son or daughter asks you for kinder joy, we know how to, even in our own evil selves, we know how to give good gifts. If they ask you for kinder joy, you don't go and pick skaringuru and bring the skaringuru and give them. You actually go for that kinder joy. We actually give good gifts um, even in our evil, evil state. Yet God does give us all good. God is the source of all good. Uh, but also the second thing that we see in that particular um, statement is that God is the standard of what is good. Uh, after creation, when God created, it was the sixth day in Genesis 131, this is what God said about his creation. He looked at it and says God saw all that he had made and, and said it was very good. He didn't say it was just good. It was. He said it was actually very good. This is God who is powerful, who is knowing, who is eternal, who is, who is omnipotent, saying about what he created that it is very good. But yet we know how that story ends. Sin comes and corrupts the goodness that was designed. So we say here that God is actually the standard of what is good. Because all that God does is good then. He does what is worthy of his approval. God doesn't Create something or do something and say that was a bad idea or that was such a bad thing. All that is, does is good. And also, in addition to that, we see a, a, a very interesting encounter in the book of Luke, in Luke 18:19, We see this young rich l- ruler. Hey, <laughs> hey, <Omala>. this is <laughs> young rich ruler, yes, who starts this conversation and says, uh, a certain man asked him, and this, this was Jesus just meeting this young rich ruler, and the young rich ruler asked Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of paused and responded to this guy, why do you call me good? And Jesus said, his answer was, no one is good except God alone. But Let's just pause on that statement and ask ourselves. This, this, we usually view ourselves as, as good people, right? We actually call ourselves, we are good people. We actually walk with the badge of honor for the what we do, that we are good people. But again, the question that begs here is that are we good people who do bad things or bad people who do seemingly good things? And if you were to pause and ask Paul that question, Paul would have one response in Romans 3.12. He will say, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Outside of God, our highest good, whatever highest good you could think you could do in your own finite way, it falls short of good standard. It's actually true that sometimes we do good for the wrong reasons, right? We do good so that other people can actually part us in the back. And then we we get those jargons of yeah? you want that honor people to celebrate you because you're good. Other times you do good to other people so that people can actually be good to us. But at the very, very heart of our goodness we lack the internal motivation to actually do that which is worthy of God's approval. And therefore we fall short of that standard. But now praise be to God that even in our fallen state, God does come and does a good work in us. Thanks be to God that it took a good God to kill his good son who knew no sin so that, so that we can have the righteousness of God and to make us good. And therefore, when you think about the word goodness in its entirety, it has an element of generosity. It's hard for you to say that you're a good person without people asking, eh, so what do you do? What have you done? God has done a good one to us by extending that goodness through Christ. But now in view of this attribute, again, we are saying it's a communicable attribute that now, because of God, we can actually share in this divine nature of him. Then what should you do? And here we have three application points towards God's goodness. And the first one is that God's goodness should remind you to abound in good works. It's easy that you know um, why you are saved. If you are saved and you've placed your hope in Jesus Christ, then congratulations to those who have just publicly professed their faith in Christ. It's likely that you know you've been saved from sin, from death, and you're looking forward to heaven. But between your salvation and the end, what happens here in between? Right? Ephesians 2.10 will tell us what happens there in between. It tells us, for we are God's handiwork, another text says God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In view of God's goodness, God has set you and saved you, to do good works, and therefore you should abound in these works. But the question that probably comes is then when, what then constitutes of good works? What then should we know? What, if God is the standard of good, then how do we describe what good works are? And if truly, truly God is the standard of good, then good works must be worthy of God's approval they must be worthy of God's approval. And for that to happen, they must be internally motivated to please God and they must outwardly or externally conform to the laws of God. And therefore, as you continue asking yourself, is this a good thing for me to do? Apply that twofold standard. Does it internally conform? Is it inwardly motivated to please God? And does it externally conform to the law of God? And therefore, everything that we do in our dealing with our creator and his creation should be done to the glory of God. The difference between someone who is driving and throwing that, whatever, bottle of Coca-Cola through the window, and a Christian who choose, chooses to withhold that that, that, that statement lies in the idea that you are able to take care of God's creation in a view that externally conforms to the law of God, and it is inwardly motivated to please God. And therefore, in 2 Corinthians 9, 9 8, Paul says, This great thing he says, and God is able to bless you abundantly out of his goodness so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And therefore, Christians should be busy people doing good works in that regard. The second point would be God's goodness should provoke you to enjoy God's goodness and gifts. Uh, In response to a false teaching in Timothy's time uh, that they were restricting eating and eating certain foods and marrying uh, in other specific places, Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5, he says this For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Therefore, there's a place for us as Christians. I know it sometimes made me feel like it's difficult for you to put God and enjoyment in the same sentence, right? But there's a place for us to actually enjoy God's gifts that he's given us. In Genesis 3, in view of behind the lie of, of the serpent, was the idea that God has not given enough for them to enjoy. Was the idea that you have all these foods to eat, but this one is a limitation, and therefore we will want to make our case to eat this one, and therefore we are missing out in enjoying the gifts that God has given us. My prayer for you is that you would enjoy the goodness and the gifts that God has given you, but also there's a caveat that you should enjoy them within the confines of you glorifying God. At the very, very heart of it, you should do your enjoyment um, to the glory and honor of his name. Again... Sometimes we are prone to grumble and to complain. And sometimes we ask the Lord to... We, we, we complain about the gifts that God has given us. We feel like God has not done this. We are not content with where we are. My prayer for you is that God would cause you to enjoy the gifts that he has given you. For Ecclesiastics, to remind us that for enjoyment, for you to enjoy the gifts and the goodness that God has given you, that in itself is an act of goodness. You can actually have a gift and lack the ability to enjoy it, Right? But the, the, the idea that you are, you can, God can give you a certain gift and that you're in a position to enjoy it, that should lead you to enjoy that gift, all to the glory and honor of his name. The third point would be, God's goodness should lead you to thanksgiving. God's goodness should lead you to thanksgiving. Psalms 107 from verses 1 says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Paul would actually say, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will, of God in Christ. This is what God desires us to do, to give thanks to him in view of his goodness. And I don't know when is the last time you sat down and counted your blessings and looked back and recounted the providential things that God has done to you. Would you do that even as you come to the end of the year, just to give glory and honor to God in view of his goodness? But also it's likely that you are filled with worry sometimes, that you worry about tomorrow and you wonder... Um, will these things work? Will everything fall into place? My prayer is that even in those moments, would you look at the birds of the air? The birds of the air who wake up and they do not sow, they do not reap, they do not hustle, yet the Father in heaven fits them. Would you wake up and look at the lilies that are clothed in splendor than Solomon, that they do not spin, yet the Lord fits them? Would you look at the ant that pretty much is right in a particular place, that finds food when you that kawan rice that you decide to pull out of the table as you wipe your table, that is food for that aunt, and God has provided for it um, in that particular way. Would you cast your worry and, and trust your life to God? That God knows what you need, and that He will actually be able to provide for you out of His sufficient goodness. But also, it's likely that in certain seasons we would feel like God's goodness is not that sweet, that it's not that present. It does not really appeal to our taste buds, and you would wonder, is God really good? and probably like the children of Israel would find ourselves in those moments of complaining and murmuring, my hope is that at the end of it all, we will pause, reflect, and hopefully count our blessings and see beyond the anguish, see beyond the loss, see beyond the despair, and hopefully at the end of it all, after the laments and after the complaint, after you walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that you'd actually see that God was actually with you and that his rod and his staff, they comforted you. And that you would explain like David, as he says in Psalms 119, verses 72, he says that it was good that I was afflicted, that I may know your statutes. David pauses and puts these two different words, goodness and affliction, in one sentence. And he says, thank God, God afflicted me, that I may know God's statutes. And my prayer is that this would actually change our view of suffering. This would actually change our view when we face trials and temptations. And that would count it all joy when we face Trials of many kinds because God is actually fashioning us to conform to His will and to His pattern. Secondly, we get into the second attribute, which is God is love. Um, Here we say in our world today, our world is made and comprised of many love stories um, from the the movies, from the music. We have a lot of definitions of that. In fact, it's likely that if I was to ask you to put two words, two top words um, in your mind, when, and, and probably put those two words that come to your mind when you think about love, it's likely that God may not appear in that top two list. It's likely that God will not really appear. So the idea of love and, um, is one that has, our view of it is skewed, and that we, if you we were to ask the question, what is love, we would arrive at different definitions. And therefore, we do know that we love for many reasons. And from our world today, it almost feels like this word love has a mystical and the magical idea in our, second, in, a, in our secular world. And therefore, as we get into this, my hope is that you would be able just to pause, to, pause, to press a pause button on all those love stories and probably love ideas that you have about what love is, and allow your mind just to learn from what God says about it. By way of definition, this is how I define it, as, as what is the love of God. By definition, it is the unconditional selfless commitment that God gives himself for, for our sake. Here, here, so how I say it, it is the unconditional self-commitment that God gives himself for our sake. We find a very striking um, word in 1 John 4, 8, whereby it says that God is love. We see that and we wonder. God is love. And here I would want us just to look at um, this particular attribute and see the two words that we see in the Old Testament and the New. And therefore... God is love, and by nature he is loving, and out of him flows his endless love for mankind. And therefore, if God is love, then we are to pause and shut off other voices that seem to tell us what love is. And therefore, we are to turn our eyes on God and hopefully get to understand what is the meaning of this word called love and how is God love. In the Old Testament, we see the first word, um, which we call it, it it's the word hesed. Hesed appears um, as one word that uh, uh, describes God's love in the Old Testament. If you were to translate it, it would actually mean either loving kindness um, or mercy. The English word doesn't really, really arrive at a good conclusion of what that, that word is. But it displays that this word basically shows us of God's pledging his love to his people in Israel. And this word hesed points us to the definition of it, which is the loyal love of God. If you are to look at Psalms 106 verses 1, this is what the Bible says. It says that the love of the Lord is everlasting. The word he said points us to that kind of loyal love, a loyalty that, a loyalty like no other, flowing from an infinite God to his people. When God was making his commitment to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, after they have crossed the Jordan, not the Jordan, they've gotten to, the, to, to Canaan and they have triumphed over the Jebusites, the Hittites, and... All all the other heights. And um, he said this to his people in Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy 7 7 to 9. He says that the Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The word he has said points us to the loyalty of God whereby he committed himself to Abraham. He was faithful to Abraham, faithful to Isaac, faithful to Jacob, went ahead and gave them the law, went ahead and gave them the, 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 the judges, went ahead and walked with them even in exile all through to the coming of Christ, fulfilling his promises, and it says, to a thousand generations. And the second one that we see in the New Testament is the word agape, a word that probably we know, and this word displays a highest form of love, which has the connotation that it is an in spite of kind of love, rather than a because of kind of love. It is a love that comes from God, and also we see it as one of the Characteristics of the attributes of the fruit, fruit of the spirit, as Galatians 5:22 will tell us, that the fruit of the spirit is love. We see it right there. And just by thinking and probably looking and reflecting on this word, it's likely that and Pastor Mora here and Reverend Mora and other couples have managed to attest to the fact that, um, let's say, if there is one couple, probably they've gotten married for a year and they are catching up on their review on how their marriage is. They can get to that point of their first anniversary and say, "I love you." because and that would be because you're doing all this all these things but again as they continue and as they turn 5 years 10 years 20 years the conversation might seemingly change to well i love you because but also i love you in spite of because there are things that probably they don't do Probably they don't manage to press the toothpaste in the right angle, having the right tangent. Um, probably they're not able to open the curtains early enough or late enough. Um, and you have, to make, you have to make peace with the fact that you love them in spite of, probably they even forget birthdays and anniversaries. Um, and this, this love basically shows us to a place of, there's an element of forgiving and forbearing. And this is an in spite of kind of love that flows from God. And therefore we see First John 4, 8 basically showing us that this love comes from God. In First John Four, eight, this is what it says from verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And that shows us the sequence of this kind of love. Left to ourselves we will not display any of this on our own. The love that you're talking about, if you were to display this kind of love, it has to flow from God. The, in spite of kind of sense in this agape word we also see it being demonstrated in us in our sinfulness in Romans 5, 6 to 8 it says you see at just the right time when you are still powerless Christ died for them and godly it says very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us Christ and God in this particular space, God demonstrated his love to us, to, both to the ungodly and also to the unrighteous, that we would actually see this kind of love and hopefully um, emulate it. And the first thing that we want us just to look at three characteristics of this love, this love is a sacrific- sacrificing kind of love. God did not just love us and said, guys, I love you, and did nothing about it. We see a text that we all know, John 3:16, which says, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, 1 John 3.16, which is such an interesting thing. It basically, these two verses pointing us back to the love of God. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And also 1 John 3, 1 would say, see what great love the Father has lavished. And that word lavished is him giving us the measure of his love. That we, have, we can't actually earn that kind of love. That he has actually lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that's what we are. Then the second thing is that this love is unconditional. This love is not one that is uh, conditional with ultimatums. that if you don't do this, uh, I will not do this. God's love for the world is unconditional. He loves his children and those who are called in his name with the same kind of love. We see in 1 John 4, 9 to 11, which says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And finally, this love is unending and enduring love. God's love for you never runs out. It never runs out. Um, and we see this text that really, really we love, and there's many songs sung about it in Lamentations three twenty-two. It says, "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; his mercies never come to an end. They are new." Every morning great is your faithfulness. And this gives us great confidence that God does not love us today and then changes his mind. And Romans 8.35-39, Romans to 39, Paul would pause and ask, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than... Conquer us through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this should actually give you confidence that God has loved you and he is willing to actually display his loyal love to you and that there is nothing. Absolutely nothing that can separate you from his love. And therefore, we can actually make this case to us that no one else is capable of loving you as fully and as generously as God does. No one else is capable of loving you as fully and as generously as God does. And therefore, for, by application in view of God displaying his goodness and his love, and all these two attributes culminating in him doing a loving a deed to us, we can actually display goodness and love to others that we can actually perfectly share in these divine attributes that have been communicated to us and we can actually be loving people and be good people in view of what is worthy of God's approval. And therefore, by way of application, I want just to give you three application points for you just to ponder on. And here, the first one is that because God has loved us, then we should love God. We should love God. We should delight in him. We should obey him. We should worship him. In John 14, 15, um, this is what John says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In 1 John 5:3, this is what John says, this is love for God. What is love for God? To obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. If you have friends that you love, or if you have a spouse that you love, if they call you and tell you, "By the day, would you wake up at 3.30 and drop me at the airport? It's not, not again. Like, it's not, you don't want to hear that. You'll actually do What? Go ahead and, and do that because you you love them. And therefore, our love for God, knowing that God has loved us, all that we can do in response to his generous, infinite, eternal love is for us to go back and love him and obey him. Not from a place of it being like we are carrying a weight, a load of limitation, but with gusto and uh, and, and excitement that we are honoring him and loving him in that way. The second thing that we can actually do is that... In view of God's love, we are to love one another. And therefore here we say that Christians should be the most loving people in our world. For we have experienced a love like no other. And an unconditional, unending kind of love. First John 5, 11, this is what John would say. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Again in 1 John 4, uh, 11 to 12, this is what it says. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And he says, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. One of the ways to know whether you are actually saved and whether you have actually tested of God's goodness and God's love is whether you display that love to Christians. Do you look forward to Sunday to come here and gather with Christians? Do you look forward to go to your real group um, and to share with other believers? Do you love your fellow Christians? Your greatest response here would be to love one another in view of God's love for you. The final application would be because God's love is to the undeserving. We didn't deserve his love. His love comes from us. Then God's love should provoke you to love your enemy. God's love should provoke you to love your enemy. In Matthew 5, 43 to 44 in the Sermon of the Mount this is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, are there people that you feel that you are enemies or they are persecuting you? The question here is that when is the last time you prayed for them? When is the last time you sat down and said, I'm going to pray for that friend who I feel but they they, are, they have done me wrong? When is the last time did you manage to reach out to that estranged friend and said, I'm going to extend love to them? And this truly has far-reaching implications on us. That, and my prayer is that Because God has shed abroad a great light in your heart to experience this love, this should actually cause you to have a different view when it comes to reconciliation. It's likely that probably you are here and there's someone that you are estranged, that family member, that friend, and you feel there is a lot of tension. May this remind us that if God was able to bridge that gap between Himself, an infinite God, with us finite human beings, how much more then can we find reconciliation between us? Finite human beings. The gap was so huge, yet Christ bridged that gap. How much more us? And my prayer is that you would find opportunities for you to actually reach out and love those around us. To go ahead and start that difficult conversation and say, I'm sorry, um, and this is what is in my heart. To go ahead and forgive um, as Christ has forgiven you. And probably it's likely that you're here and you have enjoyed the goodness of God. Probably you're not even saved and you do not know God. The rain and the sun have been shining on you. You're even probably feeling like you're prospering more than Christians. I really want to encourage you that God loves you and God desires an intimate relationship with you. And my prayer is that you would be led in view of God's goodness and love to turn to him. For our Father's arms are open wide, ready to receive you. And therefore in conclusion, my prayer is that we will be loving people and good people. Not because we can earn that by our own works so that we can boast. Because God has actually lavished on us his love. That we can actually be genuinely good people in view of what is worthy of God's approval. And that we can actually love him genuinely with a sincere heart. Love our brothers with sincere care. And also pray and love our enemies. For in, left, in our normal selves, we would choose to hate our enemies. But in view of God's love, we would choose to love our enemies and those who have hurt, hurt us, and my prayer here would be in Ephesians 3:17 that says, "I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and, and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know His love, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. My prayer is just that you would just taste of the goodness of God. But that will be an opening for you to dive into that sea of love and goodness and relish it because Christ has already paid that price for you, for you to enjoy. May the Lord bless you all.